Book Two, Chapter Seven, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But by now, Hooven's house was in the center of an enormous crowd. A vast concourse of people from Bonneville, from Guadalajara, from the ranches, swelled by the thousands who had that morning participated in the rabbit drive, surged about the place, men and women, young boys, young girls, farm hands, villagers, townspeople, ranchers, railroad employees, Mexicans, Spaniards, Portuguese. Presley, returning from the search for Delaney's body, had to fight his way to the house again and from all this multitude there rose an indefinable murmur. As yet there was no menace in it, no anger. It was confusion merely, bewilderment, the first long-drawn, oh, that greets the news of some great tragedy. The people had taken no thought as yet. Curiosity was their dominant impulse. Everyone wanted to see what had been done, failing that to hear of it, and failing that to be near the scene of the affair. A crowd of people packed the road in front of the house for nearly a quarter of a mile in either direction. They balanced themselves upon the lower strands of the barbed wire fence in their effort to see over each other's shoulders. They stood on the seats of their carts, buggies, and farm wagons, a few even upon the saddles of their riding horses. They crowded, pushed, struggled, surged forward and back without knowing why, converging incessantly upon Hooven's house. When at length Presley got to the gate, he found a carry-all drawn up before it. Between the gate and the door of the house a lane had been formed, and as he paused there a moment a group of leaguers, among them were Garnett and Gethings, came slowly from the door carrying old Broderson in their arms. The doctor, bareheaded and in his shirt-sleeves, squinting in the sunlight, attended them, repeating at every step, "'Slow, take it easy, gentlemen.' Old Broderson was unconscious. His face was not pale, no bandages could be seen. With infinite precautions the men bore him to the carry-all and deposited him on the back seat. The rain flaps were let down on one side to shut off the gaze of the multitude. But at this point a moment of confusion ensued. Presley, because of half a dozen people who stood in his way, could not see what was going on. There were exclamations, hurried movements. The doctor uttered a sharp command, and a man ran back to the house, returning on the instant with the doctor's satchel. By this time Presley was close to the wheels of the carry-all, and could see the doctor inside the vehicle, bending over old Broderson. "'Here it is! Here it is!' exclaimed the man who had been sent to the house. "'I won't need it,' answered the doctor. "'He's dying now.' At the words a great hush widened through the throng near at hand. Some men took off their hats. "'Stand back!' protested the doctor quietly. Stand back, good people, please. The crowd bore back a little. In the silence a woman began to sob. The seconds passed, then a minute. The horses of the carry-all shifted their feet and whisked their tails, driving off the flies. At length the doctor got down from the carry-all, letting down the rain flaps on that side as well. Will uh, somebody go home with the body? he asked. Gethings stepped forward and took his place by the driver. The carry-all drove away. Presley re-entered the house. During his absence it had been cleared of all but one or two of the leaguers, who had taken part in the fight. Hilma still sat on the bed with Annixter's head in her lap. S. Behrman, Ruggles, and all the railroad party had gone. Osterman had been taken away in a hack, and the tablecloth over Dabney's body replaced with a sheet. 
but still unabated, agonized, raucous, came the sounds of Harran's breathing. Everything possible had already been done. For the moment it was out of the question to attempt to move him. His mother and father were at his side. Magnus with a face of stone, his look fixed on those persistently twitching eyes, Annie Derrick crouching at her son's side, one of his hands in hers, fanning his face continually with the crumpled sheet of an old newspaper. Presley, on tiptoes, joined the group, looking on attentively. One of the surgeons, who had been called from Bonneville, stood close by, watching Harron's face, his arms folded. "'How is he?' Presley whispered. "'He won't live,' the other responded. By degrees the choke and gurgle of the breathing became more irregular, and the lids closed over the twitching eyes. All at once the breath ceased. Magnus shot an inquiring glance at the surgeon. "'He is dead, Mr. Derrick,' the surgeon replied. Annie Derrick, with a cry that rang through all the house, stretched herself over the body of her son, her head upon his breast, and the governor's great shoulders bowed never to rise again. "'God help me and forgive me,' he groaned. Presley rushed from the house, beside himself with grief, with horror, with pity, and with mad, insensate rage. On the porch outside, Carraher met him. "'Is he? Is he?' began the saloon-keeper. "'Yes, he's dead,' cried Presley. "'They're all dead, murdered, shot down, dead, dead, all of them. Who, whose turn is next? That's the way they killed me wife, Presley.' "'Carraher!' cried Presley. Give me your hand. I've been wrong all the time. The League is wrong. All the world is wrong. You are the only one of us who is right. I'm with you from now on. By God, I too. I'm a Red. In course of time, a farm wagon from Bonneville arrived at Hooven's. The bodies of Annixter and Harron were placed in it, and it drove down the lower road toward the Los Muertos ranch houses. The bodies of Delaney and Christian had already been carried to Guadalajara and thence taken by train to Bonneville. Hilma followed the farm wagon in the Derrick's carry-all with Magnus and his wife. During all that ride none of them spoke a word. It had been arranged that since Quien Sabe was in the hands of the railroad, Hilma should come to Los Muertos. To that place also Annixter's body was carried. Later on in the day, when it was almost evening, the undertaker's black wagon passed the Derrick's home ranch on its way from Hooven's, and turned into the county road toward Bonneville. The initial excitement of the affair of the irrigating ditch had died down, the crowd long since had dispersed. By the time the wagon passed Carraher's saloon, the sun had set. Night was coming on and the black wagon went on through the darkness, unattended, ignored, solitary, carrying the dead body of Dabney, the silent old man of whom nothing was known but his name, who made no friends, whom nobody knew or spoke to, who had come from no one knew whence, and who went no one knew whither. Toward midnight of that same day, Mrs. Dyke was awakened by the sounds of groaning in the room next to hers. Magnus Derrick was not so occupied with Harron's death that he could not think of others who were in distress, and when he had heard that Mrs. Dyke and Sidney, like Hilma, had been turned out of Quien Sabe, he had thrown open Los Muertos to them. Go, he warned them, 
It is precarious hospitality at the best. Until late, Mrs. Dyke had sat up with Hilma, comforting her as best she could, rocking her to and fro in her arms, crying with her, trying to quiet her. But once having given way to her grief, Hilma wept with a terrible anguish and a violence that racked her from head to foot, and at last, worn out, a little child again, had sobbed herself to sleep in the older woman's arms. And as a little child, Mrs. Dyke had put her to bed and had retired herself. Aroused a few hours later by the sounds of a distress that was physical as well as mental, Mrs. Dyke hurried into Hilma's room, carrying the lamp with her. Mrs. Dyke needed no enlightenment. She woke Presley and besought him to telephone to Bonneville at once, summoning a doctor. That night Hilma, in great pain, suffered a miscarriage. Presley did not close his eyes once during the night. He did not even remove his clothes. Long after the doctor had departed and that house of tragedy had quieted down, he still remained in his place by the open window of his little room, looking off across the leagues of growing wheat, watching the slow kindling of the dawn. Horror weighed intolerably upon him. Monstrous things, huge, terrible, whose names he knew only too well whirled at a gallop through his imagination, or rose spectral and grisly before the eyes of his mind. Harron dead, Annixter dead, Broderson dead, Osterman, perhaps, even at that moment, dying. Why, these men had made up his world. Annixter had been his best friend. Harron, his almost daily companion, Broderson and Osterman were familiar to him, as brothers. They were all his associates, his good friends. The group was his environment, belonging to his daily life. And he, standing there in the dust of the road by the irrigating ditch, had seen them shot. He found himself suddenly at his table, the candle burning at his elbow, his journal before him, writing swiftly the desire for expression, the craving for outlet to the thoughts that clamored tumultuous at his brain, never more insistent, more imperious. Thus he wrote. Dabney dead, Hooven dead, Harron dead, Annixter dead, Broderson dead, Osterman dying, S. Behrman alive, successful. The railroad in possession of Kien Sabe. I saw them shot. Not twelve hours since I stood there at the irrigating ditch. Ah, that terrible moment of horror and confusion. Powder smoke, flashing pistol barrels, blood stains, rearing horses, men staggering to their death. Christian in a horrible posture, one rigid leg high in the air across his saddle. Broderson falling sideways into the ditch, Osterman laying himself down, his head on his arms, as if tired, tired out. These things, I have seen them. The picture of this day's work is from henceforth part of my mind, part of me. They have done it. Yes, Behrman and the owners of the railroad have done it, while all the world looked on, while the people of these United States looked on. Come now and try your theories upon us, us of the ranchos, us who have suffered, us who know. Oh, talk to us now of the rights of capital. Talk to us of the trust. 
talk to us of the equilibrium between the classes. Try your ingenious ideas upon us. We know. I cannot tell whether or not your theories are excellent. I do not know if your ideas are plausible. I do not know how practical is your scheme of society. I do not know if the railroad has a right to our lands. But I do know that Harron is dead, that Annixter is dead, that Broderson is dead, that Hooven is dead, that Osterman is dying, and that S. Behrman is alive, successful, triumphant, that he has ridden into possession of a principality over the dead bodies of five men shot down by his hired associates. I can see the outcome. The railroad will prevail. The trust will overpower us. Here in this corner of a great nation, here on the edge of the continent, here in this valley of the west, far from the great centers, isolated, remote, lost, the great iron hand crushes life from us, crushes liberty and the pursuit of happiness from us, and our little struggles, our moments convulsion of death agony, causes not one jar in the vast clashing machinery of the nation's life. A fleck of grit in the wheels, perhaps a grain of sand in the cogs. The momentary creak of the axle is the mother's wail of bereavement, the wife's cry of anguish, and the great wheel turns, spinning smooth again, even again and the tiny impediment of a second, scarce noticed, is forgotten. Make the people believe that the faint tremor in their great engine is a menace to its function? What a folly to think of it! Tell them of the danger, and they will laugh at you. Tell them five years from now the story of the fight between the League of the San Joaquin and the Railroad, and it will not be believed. What? A pitched battle between farmer and railroad? A battle that cost the lives of seven men? Impossible! It could not have happened! Your story is fiction, is exaggerated. Yet it is Lexington. God help us. God enlighten us. God rouse us from our lethargy. It is Lexington. Farmers with guns in their hands fighting for liberty. Is our state of California the only one that has its ancient and hereditary foe? Are there no other trusts between the ocean and this of the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad? Ask yourselves, you of the Middle West, ask yourselves, you of the North, ask yourselves, you of the East, ask yourselves, you of the South, ask yourselves, every citizen of every state from Maine to Mexico, from the Dakotas to the Carolinas, have you not the monster in your boundaries? If it is not a trust of transportation, it is only another head of the same hydra, is not our death struggle typical? Is it not one of many? Is it not symbolical of the great and terrible conflict that is going on everywhere in these United States? Ah, you people, blind, bound, tricked, betrayed, can you not see it? Can you not see how the monsters have plundered your treasures and holding them in the grip of their iron claws dole them out to you only at the price of your blood? at the price of the lives of your wives and your little children. You give your babies to Moloch for the loaf of bread you have needed yourselves. You offer your starved wives to Juggernaut for the iron nail you have yourselves compounded. He spent the night over his journal, 
writing down such thoughts as these, or walking the floor from wall to wall, or seized at times with unreasoning horror and blind rage, flinging himself face downward upon his bed, vowing with inarticulate cries that neither S. Behrman nor Shelgrim should ever live to consummate their triumph. Morning came, and with it the daily papers and news. Presley did not even glance at the Mercury. Bonneville published two other daily journals that professed the voice, the will, and reflect the temper of the people, and these he read eagerly. Osterman was yet alive, and there were chances of his recovery. The League, some three hundred of its members, had gathered at Bonneville overnight and were patrolling the streets and, still resolved to keep the peace, were even guarding the railroad shops and buildings. Furthermore, the Leaguers had issued manifestos urging all citizens to preserve law and order, yet summoning an indignation meeting to be convened that afternoon at the city opera house. It appeared from the newspapers that those who obstructed the marshal in the discharge of his duty could be proceeded against by the district attorney on information or by bringing the matter before the grand jury. But the grand jury was not at this time in session, and it was known that there were no funds in the marshal's office to pay expenses for the summoning of jurors or the serving of processes. S. Behrman, at Ruggles, in interviews, stated that the railroad withdrew entirely from the fight. The matter now, according to them, was between the leaguers and the United States government. They washed their hands of the whole business. The ranchers could settle with Washington. But it seemed that Congress had recently forbade the use of troops for civil purpose. The whole matter of the League Railroad contest was evidently for the moment to be left in status quo. But to Presley's mind the most important piece of news that morning was the report of the action of the railroad upon hearing of the battle. Instantly Bonneville had been isolated. Not a single local train was running. Not one of the through trains made any halt at the station. The mails were not moved. Further than this, by some arrangement difficult to understand, the telegraph operators at Bonneville and Guadalajara, acting under orders, refused to receive any telegrams except those emanating from railway officials. The story of the fight, the story creating the first impression, was to be told to San Francisco and the outside world by S. Behrman, Ruggles, and the local P. and S. W. agents. An hour before breakfast, the undertakers arrived and took charge of the bodies of Harron and Annixter. Presley saw neither Hilma, Magnus, nor Mrs. Derrick. The doctor came to look after Hilma. He breakfasted with Mrs. Dyke and Presley, and from him Presley learned that Hilma would recover both from the shock of her husband's death and from her miscarriage of the previous night. "'She ought to have her mother with her,' said the physician. "'She does nothing but call for her and beg to be allowed to go to her. I have tried to get a wire through to Mrs. Tree, but the company will not take it. And even if I could get word to her, how could she get down here? There are no trains. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven, Part Two.